0: Now, you've all seen Top Gun Maverick by now, right? Right. And those of you who haven't, I'm just assuming you don't care to see it, so I'm going to spoil this movie. I apologize. If you need to, go ahead and plug your ears, okay? Go ahead and do that. And the rest of you, well, you know this movie, right? So there is this, there's this one scene at the climax of the movie where where... You know, the Tom Cruise character, Matt Maverick, he's in an F-14, and he is pitched up. He is flying higher and higher because they want to eject from the plane. They are out of ammo. They're out of flares. They're out of missiles. And they have a fifth-generation fighter on their tail, and they're about to be blown out of the sky. And the ejection mechanism doesn't work. And so the camera then pans to a focus of Maverick, and, and it's in slow motion shot, and Maverick whispers, I'm sorry, Goose. Now, for those of you who've seen the original Top Gun that came out in 1986, you know who Goose is, right? Goose was a pilot. He flew with Maverick in their F-14 back in the days. Well, more than that, Goose was Maverick's best friend. More than that, Maverick actually said to Goose, you're the only family I have. It's the closest person to Maverick, and yet... In an accident in the F-14, Maverick gets Goose killed. So now in the second movie, this new movie, what we find out is that in in, in all these decades, Maverick never got over the death, never got over the guilt of getting Goose killed. And so he spent the intervening years trying to redeem himself, putting his own career at risk, putting his own life at risk to protect other people, especially one person, Goose's son, who's also become a pilot. And then in the second movie, we get to the climax, and we're in the scene, and Maverick's in a place that he never wanted to be. He's back in an F-14, and he has Goose's son in his back seat, And they have that fifth-generation fighter on their tail, and Maverick has no more tricks up his sleeves. And he comes to the realization that he has failed in his pursuit of redemption. He cannot protect Goose's son. And so he whispers, I'm sorry, Goose. That's the emotional climax of that movie. But let's just go hypothetical, okay? Let's, let's go hypothetical, and let's, let's pretend that we don't know a thing about Top Gun. You've never seen either movie right? And you somehow, your YouTube recommendation gave you, you know, hey, watch this final fight scene from Top Gun Maverick. And so you're like, okay, I click on it. And you get to watch it. And you're watching go, oh, that's pretty cool. Very cool action sequence. Great photography. Great choreography with these planes. What a wonderful thing. And then there's this final bit. And you're like, huh, who is Goose? And why is he apologizing to him? that you would get the idea that something emotionally devastating just happened, but you wouldn't know why and you wouldn't feel it. Well, my guess is that that's how we experience the Bible when we read about the death of Jesus on the cross. We read about Jesus on the cross and we go, huh, something important, something powerful just happened, but we're not exactly sure why and we definitely don't feel it. Today, I want to talk about the cross. And today, I want to help us get a glimpse of why the cross is not only the theological climax of the story of the Bible, but it's also the emotional climax of the story of the Bible. But before I go there, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Just greet all of you who are here and all of you joining us and all the different sites and venues in front of your computer or joining us via the podcast. We're so glad you're here. Welcome to Blackhawk Church. Thank you for joining us. We are in a sermon series called Live This Book. We've been doing this since last September, and the big idea of this series is that the whole Bible is a single story, a single narrative with these seven major plot points, and we have been in this one, Jesus the King, for the past few weeks, and now we've been hitting the climax of the entire story. We've been hitting the death of Jesus on the cross, and this event is so important that we dedicated two Sundays to talk about it. So part one, cross part one was last week, and cross part two is today. These two talks are connected. If you miss cross the first one, go ahead and catch it online. All right. And, uh, and so today, because it's connected, what I want to do is I want to give us a quick recap of the three big ideas we talked about last Sunday. Okay. And if you want to dive in deeper on those, go check out the first video. Big idea about the cross from last week. Number one, the cross doesn't do just one thing. That's a big idea. Many Christians have the idea the cross does only one thing. It, it, It removes our sins so we can be reconciled to God. And what we find out is that the Bible says, no, 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 the cross does a heck of a lot more than that. The cross is amazing. All right, if you think the cross only does one thing, you're missing out on something that can radically transform your life. That's big idea, number one. Number two. The cross is the climax of the story of the Bible because it brings resolution to the story of the Bible. Very quick recap of the story. God creates humans to be his partner to run the world. They rebel. The world falls apart. God recruits a people called ancient Israel. Hey, be my partner to help me fix the world. They rebel. They end up in exile. How is God gonna fix this? Well, God shows up into the world as a human being, as God and as human and as the king, as Jesus, he says, I am going to establish the kingdom of God on earth. I'm gonna do it by relaunching the people of God. This is the people who are gonna be empowered to accomplish the mission, and they're gonna be transformed so they can love each other and live on my character. And Jesus says, I'm gonna do all of that by dying on the cross. Well, how does that work? And that's big idea number three. The Bible understands the cross as Old Testament ritual animal sacrifices. This is just really weird. (laughs) We talked about this last week, how this is gross, this is icky, it's not part of our culture, but we need to always remember the Bible's not written to us, but for us. The New Testament was written to people who really get animal sacrifices. They participate in them, they've seen them all the time, they get it, they have intuitions about it. We don't. So a big part of last week and this week is about getting into the logic of animal sacrifices. Last week, we spent the rest of the time talking about the logic of covenant initiation sacrifice. Today, we're gonna do more animal sacrifice logic. I hope you guys are okay with that. Okay. So, (laughs) Jesus gave the church two rituals. Communion, we talked about last week. So today, let's begin with the other one, baptism. Baptism. As this is what baptism looks like at Blackhawk Church. Roll clip. Buried with Christ. And praise. What's this? What's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ and raised to walk a new life. Just real quick, our next baptism is coming up, April 28th, Friday, here at Braid Away. I just wanna say. I want to invite you to come. It's, it's one of the most encouraging times, encouraging services that we have at Blackout Church. You hear stories about what God is doing in people's lives, how he transforms people. It's so fun to listen to these stories. So come and enjoy what God is doing in our midst and celebrate what God's doing in our midst, okay? So that's April 28th, Friday, and you'll hear more about it coming up, okay? But the reason I played that video wasn't to do the promo, The reason I did the video is because I want you to focus on the words that the pastors said when they performed the baptism. They said this, buried with Christ, raised to walk a new life. Now, what does that mean? It seems like what they're saying is that the act of baptism symbolizes dying with Jesus and then resurrecting with Jesus into a brand new life. What they seem to be saying is that the act of baptism symbolizes becoming united and joined with Jesus on the cross. Now, why would they say a thing like that? The Bible says it. The Bible says it. Here we go. This is, this is Galatians. Paul saying, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He's been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Or in Colossians, since you, all of you, died with Christ, to the elemental spiritual forces to this world, dot, dot, dot. Second Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. Or Romans, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Something very, very odd about the death of Jesus. Most people who have ever lived have died. And when they die, they're the only person who died. Jesus' death is different. Jesus' death is unique. Jesus' death is unlike any death ever. Jesus' death is open to participation. You can choose to join Jesus in his death. And in fact, the Bible says, those of you who are Christ followers, you have already done so. Now, can I just say how weird that is? That is super weird, right? Okay, let's just say, okay, one of us here—some of you here—you're not yet Christ followers, right? Or you're watching. You're not yet your a Christ follower, and you make a decision during this talk to become a Christ follower, to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you make that decision. So what the Bible says is what happens is at that very moment, you are taken out of this time and space, moved back all the way to first century Palestine. You end up on the cross with Jesus and you die with him on the cross with Jesus and then you're buried with him and then you resurrect with him through on Easter Sunday, you resurrect with him and now all of that happens in that one single instant when you put your faith in Jesus. That's what happens to you. And then it's not just that. You're now united with Jesus for eternity. That's a weird concept, isn't it? That's that foundational biblical concept called union with Christ. It's one of the most important things the Bible says about us, that with those of us who are Christ followers, we are joined with Jesus in his death and then in his resurrection and we're united with him. How does that happen, you ask? Well, the answer, the cross. The cross makes that happen. The cross unites us to Jesus. It is the most important thing that the cross does. The most important thing the cross does. The cross opens a way for God's people to join with Jesus in his death and his, with his resurrection. Well, obvious next question, how? How does the cross join us with Jesus? And now we need to dive into the logic of animal sacrifices. You see, God sees the death of Jesus on the cross as a type of Old Testament sacrifice. And one of the core idea of a sacrifice is that when you make an animal sacrifice, you are joining yourself to the animal that is being sacrificed. Let me give you an example so, so think about a sin offering. Okay, so this is right out of the book of Leviticus. It's back in the Old Testament time, okay? So, so let's say, okay, I'm you know, I'm Charles, I, I commit a sin against God. I want to find forgiveness before God. So I take my animal and I take, take the animal all the way to the temple. And at this mo- moment, I put my hand on, on the animal and I kill the animal. The priest, they take the carcass, they take a little bit of fat out, and then they put the whole thing on the altar and they burn the whole thing up. And at the end of that process, I am forgiven. And you're like, well, how? Okay. So here's the logic of that. You see, a sin offering is an act of grace. It's an act of grace. God graciously chooses to see the death of the animal as my death. This is an act of grace. God says, okay, I'm going to look at the dead animal and we go, okay, that's dead Charles right there. That's dead Charles, which means all the things he's done, all the wrong things he's done, all the punishment, all all the guilt, it it, it died with him right there, okay? That's an act of grace. But I'm still alive. The animal's dead. I'm still alive. So now I live a life that is forgiven. That's how sin offering works. Now, you notice within that, there's really two different things going on at the same time. On, On the one hand, the animal dies For me, right? The animal dies, so I don't die. There is substitution going on here. At the same time, though, the animal dies and I also died. There is representation. Both is happening representation and substitution. Both end is happening in a sin offering. And this is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians. For Christ's love compels us, he said, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Right here, this is substitution. Jesus died for us so we don't have to die. And then Jesus died for us, therefore we all died. Do you understand that? A sin offering accomplished this union with the thing that is sacrificed. So, Jesus, as the ultimate sin offering, joins us to God. The cross accomplishes this. The cross allows us to become united with Jesus. Okay, so that's how the cross unites us with Jesus. What does that mean, really? Oh, my gosh. I can go all day telling you about what it means to be united with Jesus. But, but let's start with something basic, right? So I'm united with Jesus. God looks at me. He sees Let's try that again, okay? This is participation, okay? Let's try this again, okay? I'm united with Jesus, so God looks at me and he sees? How do you think that affects my relationship with God? I stay pretty good, right? God looks at me and he sees everything good that Jesus has ever done and everything I've done wrong, all my flaws, all my sins, all my ego, my pride, everything I've ever done wrong, that died with Jesus on the cross. Think about that. That is awesome. There is no sin. There is no guilt. There's no condemnation. Nil, nada, zilch. All gone. That's amazing. But there's more. I sound like an infomercial, right? But there's more. The, the cross doesn't just brings about our forgiveness, the cross changes our status. Let's try this again. I am united with Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, which means I am God's. Yes. Do you understand that? Every single one of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, you are now God's children, adopted into God's family. You are God's son and God's daughter. You have this tight family relationship with God. Whew! It's an incredible change in identity. Do you understand? You have to figure out who you are. Who are you? I'm a child of God. I am son of God. That's like amazing, right? That's amazing. But there's more. (laughs) But there's more. Now, okay. It doesn't just accomplishes our forgiveness. It doesn't just change our status. The cross brings about our transformation. How? Well, I'll show you. Okay, so Paul spends two chapters in the book of Romans to talk about how the cross does this. It's in chapter five and chapter six, six and uh, I don't have time to talk about two chapters today, but I want to give you the gist of what he's saying, okay? And you can go home and read it if you want to. Now, Here's the problem coming out of the Old Testament, right? God creates humans, they rebel. They don't want to live out what it means to be the image of God. Why not? God creates Israel, establishes a covenant with them. Hey, be my partner, change the world. They can't keep covenant. What is going on with the story of the Old Testament? Why are humans failing so badly? So what Paul's explanation in Romans 5 and 6 is this, he said, look, because of Adam and what happened in the Garden of Eden, all of humanity is born into a state of being under the control of sin and death, okay? Every single one of us who are born as humans, we're born inside here. We're under the kingdom of, of, of sin, and sin is seen by Paul as a as a person with power and control. The sin is a king. He rules over us. Now, so, so and, there, and here's the thing, there's no way out. Think, think of this as a prison, right? You have been sentenced to prison for life, and sin is the warden, and there's no escape, no escape because this is Supermax. So this is actually sounding like the plot of a prison break movie, okay? Because what's gonna happen is Jesus is gonna come into the world. He is gonna come into this prison ruled by, by, by sin and death to try to rescue us, because here's the thing. How do you get out of prison? How do you get out of prison? There is one way. You die. You die. You have to die. You die, and they will cart you out, okay? So Jesus comes in, and what does he do? He dies on the cross. And by dying on the cross, Um, What happens, can you bring the other slide back? we die on the cross, he allows us, remember his death is different. He allows us to join him in his death. Does that make sense? We joined him and died with him. So as far as the sin is concerned, oh yeah, these people, they're all dead. They're dead. And they're carted out. They died to sin. And what happens is then, is that, surprisingly, Jesus then goes and resurrects and comes to a new life. And so what happens is all the people who who used to be here, we come over here, we died over here, and we end up over there. And we resurrect with Jesus. We're united with Jesus. That's what's going on in Romans 5 and 6. So you see this in Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, for we know that our old self is crucified with him so that our body so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You see right here, right? We, are ruled, we were ruled by sin. We were slaves to sin. But by dying with Jesus, we are set free. That's cool. (laughs) It just did that by itself. Do you understand? We were slaves to sin. We were under the control and power of sin, and the only way to get out is to die. And by dying with Jesus, we're out, and we're joined with Jesus. And in joining with Jesus, verse 8 says, now if we die with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Oh, right? Joined with Jesus in his death, Join with Jesus in his life. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Here's the payoff verse right here, guys. Okay, everybody, Christ followers, listen to this verse. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are dead to sin and you're alive to God because of the cross, Okay, now, I just need to pause right here because I think some of you are going, uh, Charles, I don't feel like I'm dead to sin. I, I mean, I don't want to, you know, raise your hand. How many feel like people feel like, yeah, I'm dead to sin. Oh, that's all good, no problem. I think the moment we start talking about that, we, we realize, yeah, sin has significant power in different areas of our lives. And we know that the moment we start thinking about it and going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right, I know exactly what you're talking about, Charles. There is a disconnect between what the Bible says about us and how we feel, all right? They don't match at all. So what is Paul talking about? Well, let me say this and try to say this as clearly as I possibly can. Being dead to sin does not mean you don't sin. Okay, this is weird. I know this is kind of weird. Being dead to sin does not mean you don't sin. Let's get back to this diagram. Being dead to sin is a theological statement about our spiritual state. Paul is saying, hey, being dead to sin means you you no longer live over here. You're alive over here. That's all he's saying. He's saying, you're not over here anymore. You're over there. Okay? Now, can you sin over there? Yes. (laughs) Yes, you can. And we do it. And we do it a lot. We sin a lot over here. Why? Because the moment we put our faith in Jesus, we, we, we die on this side. We join Jesus in, in his death. We move over there and come to life over here. But all everything else about us has not changed. Our memories, our, our patterns, our habits, our, the ways we do things has not changed. And so we continue to sin. It's, it's, like, it's like moving to a different country. I mean, imagine, if you will, if you, uh, I don't know, decided... One day, you want to move to France and become French citizens. You want want, want to become French. So you take your family and you you fly to Paris. The day you land in Paris, can you now speak French? Do you understand where to go shopping in Paris? Do you understand French culture? Do you lose the urge to eat brats? (laughs) None of that changes, right? Nothing changes. Moving from the, 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 the sin to, to, the, to the kingdom of grace is like moving countries. You have to adopt new values, new way of being, new ways of thinking, new worldviews. It's a massive change. So what ends up happening, and this is a huge problem in the first century and in the 21st century, Paul is, was writing to address this problem, which is you have a whole bunch of people who are like on this side of the kingdom of grace. <laughs> and they're all piled up here. And they're all like, hey, Talk to us. What are you saying, sin? Talk to us. We'll do what you want me to do. I'll keep listening to you because we're so used to listening to sin. We got a bunch of people piled up over here. And they're like, hey, what's going on? Talk to us. And Paul's like over here. I'm going to switch sides, okay? Paul's like over here going, "Uh, guys, stop that. Okay? That's a lousy kingdom. That's a bad place to be. Don't listen to him. You don't have to anymore. You used to have to, you don't have to anymore. You're free. Come this way. Move this way and learn what it's like to be alive and attentive to God. It's a transformed life. It's a different kind of life. It's an awesome life. It's a long path of growth. It's not easy. But come this way. Stop listening over there. You're dead to sin. So start living like it. Now, making this move is not easy. Making this move is not easy. It's a a lifetime of journey of transformation. But the very first step of that journey, knowing that you are free. You have to know that you don't have to listen anymore. You don't have to listen to sin anymore. And that allows you to not listen to sin anymore. You are free from sin, you are dead to sin. You are alive to God. This is absolutely critical about who we are. So this is what we cover today about the cross. The cross unites us with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And because we're united with Jesus, we are forgiven and we are reconciled with God. Because we're united with Jesus, we are adopted as God's sons and daughters. And this is the big one. Because we're, we're united with Jesus, we're saved from the control and power of sin. This is the definition of salvation, folks, according to the Bible. Some people confuse salvation with being saved from God's wrath. No, no, no. The Bible talks about salvation. It talks about us being saved from the control and power of sin. Okay. By the way, I can keep going on. There's, there's, there's tons more about what it means to be united with Jesus. I can keep going. But I do want to switch gears. Last week, we talked about communion. And we talked about how communion symbolizes Christ in us. Today, we talked about baptism. And it's about we in Christ. Last week, it was about how The cross established us as God's covenant people empowered on this mission to the world. Today, we talked about how the cross established our our identity before Jesus as his children, that sins are forgiven, we are adopted, and we are free from the control of sin sin and, and death. This is good, right? This is why the cross is the theological climax of the story of the Bible. But I want to end our time together thinking about why the cross is the emotional climax of the story of the Bible. And to do that, I want to ask a question that we don't ask very often. What does the cross do for God? You see, we're very used to thinking about what the cross does for us. Forgiveness, adoption, salvation from sin, transformation, all awesome. What does the cross do For God. When I was growing up, I thought about my parents as people who loved me, who protected me, and gave me things I needed. It wasn't until college that it finally dawned on me that, whoa, my parents have dreams and visions about their own life, that they have wants and desires and needs of their own. Some of you in high school or younger, you're probably like, no, really? That's not possible. Okay? That was a realization. Well, in the same way, as we mature in Christ, as we grow, there comes a time when there is a realization that, oh, God, he wants something. What does he want? What is he looking for? And we ask the question, what does the cross do for God? When people first reads the Bible and they tackle the Old Testament, they're often struck by the God's anger. I get that question a lot. Why is God so angry? Why is God so angry? Because we're not comfortable with an angry God. Well, here is the Bible's answer to God's anger. The Bible says, our God is angry because he is a God who loves intentionally and passionately. And that love has rarely been returned. Think about that. Let's start with the beginning of the story. Our God creates the world. He creates human beings. He invites them into, into to help them run the world, right? So our God is a creator God. He, he's a, he, he's, but he's not a God who's like, oh, I create all that stuff, but I'm so far above it. No, no, no. Our God is a creator God who invests in his creation. He is connected with his creation. He says, these, are, these, these, these humans, they image me. And I want to invite them into this community of love, this community of love that I've enjoyed as part of the Trinity for eternity. I want them to be part of this. And they say no. So our God is a creator who has been rejected by his own creation. God reaches out a hand of friendship and love. It's been slapped away. And so God says, okay, I'm going to create a people. And this is the people I'm going to get to know. This is the people that we're in a covenant relationship with, a commitment, committed relationship of love and affection and loyalty and friendship. And God loves these people intensely, passionately. And the people promise to love him back, but they don't. So our God is a God who has been betrayed by people who promised to love him. And if you understand that, you have a grip on God's anger in the Old Testament. I want to show you this amazing passage in the book of Hosea that really captures the heart of God. Okay, this is Hosea chapter 11. This is what God says. Okay? When Israel was a child... I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me, right? I'm calling them and they're running away. This is the dynamic in the Old Testament. Keep going. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is another word for Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Okay, are you seeing this? Taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek and bent down to feed them. Are you seeing what God is saying? He's saying, my people, they're my babies. They're my babies. Oh, I love them. Those of you who are parents of youngsters, of toddlers and babies, and, and you, have, you experience sometimes this incredible sense of tenderness, this incredible sense of protectiveness, protectiveness over your children, you get the heart of God. In fact, where does that come from? It comes from God. God. This is who God is, and you're imaging him when you feel those things. The this, this sense of, oh, man, I want to love you. God looks at every one of us. He says, I want to love you. I want to pick you up and hold you. I want to give you all my affection and attention and lavish them on you. But his people said no. They pushed him away. His children said no, and they pushed them away. And God's like, okay. But then the problem is the people started doing horrific things to each other. And God's like, this, I need to do something about this. Things, things are falling apart. This, this requires tough love. But God says, I can't do this. I can't do this. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry on my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. Do you understand the heart of God? Some of you parents, you've gone through difficult times with your kids. You get a glimpse of the heart of God. God's like, okay, I get it. We need tough love right now. We need tough love. Things are not going to change. There's no hope for transformation. Things are spiraling downward, getting out of control. God's mission to the world is going down the tubes. We have a people who don't know God, don't love God, and they say, hey, we're people of God. God has to cast them out of the land. But he says, I can't. I can't do this. They're my kids. I love them. I can't do this. Eventually, he does. He does. He cast them out of the land, and he hurts. And then God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and get them. I'm going to go and get them. I'm going to enter into my creation. I'm going to become human and walk among my people. I will show them what it's like to be with me, to know me and to love me. So I'm going to teach them how to live. And and I know they can't follow me even if they tried. I know that. But I am going to die on the cross for them. And with that death, I'm going to open a way for them to join and become part of me. I'm going to unite them to me through the cross. And when I've united them with me, they are no longer under the control of sin and death. All the things they've done wrong, all the punishment they deserve, I will take care of it. I will bear it. And all their flaws, all their brokenness, my spirit will come upon them and help them grow and become the people I want them to be. So that they can truly live out what it means to be the image of God so that they can actually finally love each other across boundaries and so that finally they can love me. That's what the cross does for God. And that is why the cross is the emotional climax of the story of the Bible. I want to invite you into a time of meditation and prayer right now. Go ahead and close your eyes, bow your head. And if you want, if the Holy Spirit is talking to you in whatever way you need to talk to God, go ahead and do that right now. But I do want to talk to some of you in, in the room right now, those of you who are not yet Christ followers, those of you who have been investigating the claims of Jesus and what it all means to follow Jesus, today you learned a lot. Today you learned, and this sounds so religious to say, so such Christianese today, you learn that God loves you, that He really loves you, that He wants to hold you and unite you to Himself. He wants you to know Him and to experience His love, His peace, and His power for transformation, so you can live out the life that you always intended to have. So today, I want to ask you: Will you love Him back? will you take a step toward God? And if today you made that decision to put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, just pray this simple prayer with me in your head. Say, God, I know you love me. I know that Jesus died on the cross for me so that I can be united to you. And what I want is to be joined with you in this life and for eternity. I want to love you back. And if you made that prayer, something amazing just happened to you. You do not know it, but you traveled in space and time and you joined Jesus on the cross and you died and now you are living a new life in Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And for all of the rest of us, those of us who are Christ followers, I want to leave you with a reminder that you are dead to sin. I know it doesn't feel that way, but you are dead to sin. You have been freed, you have been saved by Jesus because how God loves us. So let me pray for us. Father, it sounds so cliche to say that you love us, but oh my gosh, it is the best word. It is the only word to describe your commitment to us, your affection for us, your desire for us. You can't deny that. You created us to be your children, and you love us as your children, and you want to hold our hands, and you want to embrace us. So help us become people who can see that, and people who not only see that, but embrace that, and find a way to return your love. We want to know you. We want to know the power of your resurrection alive in us so that we can become a people transformed into people who can love others across boundaries and people who can love you back. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,